eat your lunch, did you? I better get back to the office. These extended lunch hours give my boss excess acid. Why don't you call your boss and tell him you're taking the rest of the afternoon off? Friday anyway, and hot. What do I do with my free afternoon? Walk you to the airport. Well, you could laze around here a while longer. Hmm. Checking out time is 3 p.m. Hotels of this sort aren't interested in you when you come in, but when your time is up. Sam, I hate having to be with you in a place like this. I've heard of married couples who deliberately spend an occasional night at a cheap hotel. When you're married, you can do a lot of things deliberately. You sure talk like a girl who's been married. Sam, this is the last time. Yeah, for what? For this. Meeting you in secret so we can be secretive. You come down here on business trips. We steal lunch hours. I wish you wouldn't even come. All right. What do we do instead? Write each other lurid love letters. I have to go, Sam. I can come down next week. No. Not even just to see you? Have lunch? In public? Oh, we can see each other. We can even have dinner. But respectively. In my house, with my mother's picture on the mantel, and... My sister helping me broil a big steak for three. And after the steak, we send sister to the movies, turn mama's picture to the wall. Sam. You're listening to Sassmouth James Podcast. I'm your host, Megan McGurk. In 1960, billboards and posters advertised Psycho with close-up shots of Janet Lee in a white bra and half-slip sitting on a bed. Publicity also included her character's name, Marion Crane, in large type. The promotion and the first part of the film led audiences to believe Janet Lee was playing a woman who knows all the answers. For 30 years, women on the big screen knew all the answers, how to get what they want. They told us so. Marie Prevost had all the answers in Ladies of Leisure back in 1930. She knew how to have your cake and eat it too, have two cakes. In The Midnight Lady from 1932, a man asks Claudia Dell if she knows all the answers. She replies not only that, she wrote them. Joan Blondell had all the answers in 1933 as Blondie Johnson. The only thing that matters is dough. Joan Bennett started a 1941 picture called She Knew All the Answers. In The Revolt of Mamie Stover from 1956, Jane Russell knew the answer for how to strike it rich by taking advantage of a government scramble for real estate. During Psycho from 1960, Janet Lee's Marion Crane belongs to the club. Marion knows what she wants. She wants hunky Sam, who's played by John Gavin. And she knows how to get him by stealing a pile of dough. Marion swindles a couple of men who had it coming. Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho is filled with lust, greed, and revenge before we get near the Bates family romance. From the opening scene, a hot nooner in a shabby hotel, the audience sees Marion in a long procession of heroines in woman's pictures. She's smart, ambitious, and normally sensible, but she's lost the run of herself when it comes to Sam. Marion is undone by her desire for Mr. Tall, Dark, and Handsome. 
The fly in the ointment, the impediment to marrying getting her man, is the lack of money, or so what, that's what Sam says. He can't afford to marry her because of his father's debts and the alimony he has to his ex-wife. He lives in the back of a storeroom, a hardware shop, in a small town in California. Janet Lee felt the way the opening scene played out that Sam was holding something back for another reason, and maybe his character didn't match her character's passion. Since marriage was the only option for women to have their beefcake and eat it too, men were probably very creative when it came to putting off an exchange of vows. And when I think about the women sitting there in the theater, I'm guessing that by a certain age, women had heard every excuse in the book for why a man couldn't walk down the aisle. Watching Sam and Marion, women in the seats must have felt like he wasn't in a rush to tie the knot. Sam's not swept away by their affair, as Marion clearly is, when she offers to make a grand romantic gesture. I'll lick the stamps, she tells Sam, referring to the envelopes he uses to send the alimony check to his ex-wife. The audience knows Marion's undone because she pretends she has the upper hand when she hasn't. One minute she declares, this is the last time, Sam, and the next she pledges to lick the stamps. We know she doesn't mean it, and Sam knows she doesn't mean it. Marion may crave respectability, but not at the expense of her afternoon delight. Marion's restlessness in the hotel room foreshadows the decision she makes to risk it all for Sam. For example, the opening titles tell us that it's 2.43 in the afternoon and Marion is just getting dressed from her lunchtime tryst. She arrives at the office only moments before her boss, Mr. Lowry, and his rich client, Mr. Cassidy. Marion boldly keeps executive hours, like some man who knocks off in the afternoon for an affair or a three-martini lunch. Real estate office secretaries don't get to take three-hour lunches and then leave early for the day. Marion is reckless before she steals that envelope of cash. With Caroline, her office mate played by Patricia Hitchcock, Marion is remote and quiet, Viewers sense the general dynamic between the women. Caroline overshares and talks nonstop about boring details, which Marion tunes out. Caroline offers to share her tranquilizers to get rid of Marion's headaches, noting that she got the bottle of pills on her wedding day, which is a nice little nod to women's pictures there. Then the men arrive. Marion is remote with them too, but also in a very overtly formal way with her manners and speech. Marion rests her chin on her hand while the rich oil man, Mr. Cassidy, talks about the house he's buying for his teenage daughter. She wears a fixed expression, officious, polite, non-committal, and it looks second nature, something she has to do every day on the job. This guy is just another blowhard. He's a bore in a tacky bolero tie and a cowboy hat. Just another boy playing dress-up, acting like the big man. Marion uses red-light words to stop him from putting the moves on. Cassidy comes on to Marion in a ham-fisted manner, talking about how he buys off unhappiness, and asks Marion if she's unhappy, not inordinately, she tells him. She uses a $5 word, which is diction outside his normal speech. 
Cassidy's wealth makes him a lazy man of monosyllables. But Marion is polysyllabic. Her vocabulary is as multifaceted and complex as her keen desire to get what she wants and to break out of her secretarial pen. Cassidy doesn't heed Marion's disinterested signals. He starts his little bad boy routine, asking Lowry to break out the bottle he has hidden in his desk so he can quench his thirst rooney Cassidy assumes he can buy her and suggests a weekend in Las Vegas. It's a wonder Marion doesn't clobber him with her typewriter. Any woman who has had a man sit on her desk, act like she has a price tag, and wave a stack of bills in her face has considered what Marion dares to do. And Hitch plays on this fantasy, a woman's temptation to shut a rich man up and take his dough. Any man who can carry 40000 in cash can afford to lose it. The men aren't in the picture very long, but they are insufferable. Mr. Lowry, the boss, is weak and ineffectual and becomes instantly unlikable when we learn that his office is air-conditioned while Caroline and Marion toil out front, stuck in the airless Arizona heat. Marion doesn't really look at the stack of bills Mr. Cassidy holds, which makes it seem like she's already decided to steal the money. In her white shirt dress, she folds each bundle of cash into a long white envelope and tucks it into her white handbag. It just so happens it's a perfect fit. Then Marion puts her plan into motion. The scene cuts to Marion in her bedroom, in front of her closet, staring at the white envelope on the bed. A close-up of the stack of money on the bed suggests illicit connotations, as if she were a sex worker or a kept woman earning her cash the hard way. It's tied up with her lunchtime hookups with Sam. The bed, the sex, the money, the guilt. It's worth noting that the envelope stuffed with cash has a rubber band around it, which it didn't have in the office. Marion has packed the money before she finished packing her suitcase full of clothes. Then the camera shot pulls back, which lets us see the open suitcase on the other end of the bed. And Hitch dresses Marion's guilt with a black bra and half slip. She pauses with worry while she stares at the money. Hitchcock gave Janet instructions about how to pack the suitcase. It's worth noting here that in Tony Curtis's memoir, American Prince, he mentioned that he was struck by the way Janet packed a suitcase when they were married. Janet's mother told him that Janet packed like the suitcase was a human body. Here are the lungs, the stomach, everything just so. But her usual orderly method is absent in the scene where Marion prepares to go on the lamb. One of the last things she puts in the suitcase is a pair of bedroom slippers. And who on earth puts shoes on top, even if they're only slippers worn around the house? The slippers on top is the telltale sign that she's not really thinking clearly. But each time Marion touches the money, we can see how well organized she is, how orderly and efficient. She thinks about how to conceal it, how to transport it, how to make it become invisible. 
later, later in the picture, Obergast cracks wise that someone always sees a woman with $40,000. But that isn't the case with Marion. They see her, but not the money. When she makes her getaway, Marion tucks the cash into a little tote purse with handles that don't even close on top. When the cop is at the window of her car, she has the money nearly in his face. Marion carries the envelope of cash like the purloined letter in Poe, hiding in plain sight. When she handles the cash, she keeps the envelope folded just so, without extra creases. In the car dealer's restroom, Marion slips the rubber band on her wrist, a secretary's bracelet. It's an automatic reflex the way she does it, like putting a pencil behind your ear. Marion puts the rubber band around her wrist with one hand, flexing her fingers wide until it slides down her wrist. It's the little bits of business that Janet Lee improvises with the money that really makes women in the audience identify with her. Haven't we all done that with a rubber band? And doesn't it show how out of character this sort of thing is for her? It's part of the process of counting money. The rubber band is office equipment to a professional like Marion Crane. It keeps everything together so she doesn't lose anything or leave it behind. In the Bates Motel, Marion rejects the usual hiding places for the money. She passes over the drawers and the desk, the bureau, and the nightstand. Instead, she divides the money in equal neat piles and folds it over in a newspaper. And then she puts the newspaper out on the open on top of the night table. And again, she's hiding it in plain sight. Which makes me wonder, later, why didn't Norman notice how heavy the paper was when he picked it up? So much for his observational powers. The voyeur who couldn't feel a fortune in the daily Los Angeles Times. When Marion steps into the shower, it's the first time we've seen any pleasure on her face since she was in bed with Sam. Everything's settled. She's made up her mind. She'll go back to Phoenix and take her medicine. Return the money. The water feels good after a restless night sleeping in her car and then driving 500 miles. Although Marion is a quick study and she knows all the answers, she could not possibly have accounted for someone like Norman Bates. Marion assumes he's a regular Boy Scout, a man who wouldn't harm a fly just because he can't say the word bathroom and shies away from eating dinner with a bed in the room. But then Psycho walks in the bathroom, this man dressed as his mother, with a butcher knife. Alfred Hitchcock had been excavating women's deepest anxieties on the big screen for decades. One of the most persistent themes in Hitch's work is a woman who fears that a man she lives with or a man she loves is secretly a killer. Suspicion, shadow of a doubt, spellbound, notorious, and dial M for murder are key examples. And I might also throw in rope and strangers on a train. For Hitch's leading ladies, the trouble is men who aren't what they seem. Norman is just a random stranger. Bad luck on the road. Psycho operates at another level to exploit women's fears. It makes us fear what can happen in the shower, for sure, but it's more than that. Once Marion Crane is murdered, her absence is felt through the rest of the picture. We knew her. 
We liked her. And then she's brutally murdered and we're asked to care about whether Norman gets away with it. In Hollywood, the focus has been on men ever since. For 62 years, we've been waiting for the return of a woman like Marion Crane before she stopped at the Bates Motel. And I've been waiting for a return of a woman who knows all the answers, a woman who can break the rules and still get what she wants. As a filmmaker, Hitchcock had to know what kind of impact this would have on women in the audience, this bait and switch. Hitch's closest confidants in filmmaking, his wife Alma, screenwriter and editor, production assistant Peggy Robertson, and former protege, producer, and screenwriter Joan Harrison must have felt the way this would change storytelling on the screen. Psycho's shift in point of view was one of the most radical shifts in cinema history, which reverberates through pictures through the present day. The death of Marion Crane in 78 quick edits ushered in the death of woman's pictures. When Janet watched the final print, she had a panic attack during the shower scene. Logically, she knew it wasn't real. After all, she spent a week on set in a moleskin bikini made by Rita Riggs to protect her modesty during the shower sequence. It wasn't real, and yet Janet felt the attack in the shower. She felt the knife rip into her body while she watched in the dark. And from that moment on, she stopped taking showers. Janet Lee became a strictly baths kind of woman. If she found herself on the road traveling and a shower was the only option, she had a strict protocol. All windows and doors must be locked. And then she stood with the shower curtain or door open and faced the door to the bathroom, which was also kept open. Hitchcock had considered many Hollywood blondes before he chose Janet Leigh. He watched footage of Piper Laurie, Martha Heyer, Hope Lang, and even Lana Turner for potential stars of Psycho before he signed Janet. Janet explained that she was chosen because Hitch sensed a vulnerability and a softness about her. Plus, he felt Janet looked like she could be from Phoenix, as opposed to, say, Lana Turner, who looked pure Hollywood. Hitch knew Janet Lee and Tony Curtis socially. They were part of the A-list crowd in the film colony. One day, he sent Janet a copy of the novel, telling her he wanted her to play the character Mary, who was later changed to Marion in the picture. He also said that he would build up the role in his adaptation. Janet confided in her memoir that she didn't have to read it. She would have said yes to anything he offered. She would have done it for free. Hitch and Janet had several meetings before production began, unlike when Hitch signed Tony Perkins and never really met with the actor to discuss the picture before the cameras rolled. During one of the first meetings, Hitch talked at length with Janet about her wardrobe for the picture. And the attention he paid to the clothes his leading ladies wore is legendary. But Hitch didn't plant a custom Edith Head wardrobe for Janet. Instead, he sent production designer Hilton Green and a crew to Phoenix to find a Marion type, a woman who worked in a real estate office, and then photograph everything in her closet. Helen Kolvig and Rita Riggs were costume designers from Hitchcock's television show, and he hired them for Psycho. Hitch wanted Janet's clothes off the rack, not only for realism, but also to keep expenses down. 
Why make a dress when you can buy one, Rita explained. They didn't exactly shop the bargain rails. They took Janet to Jack's, which was a posh Beverly Hills boutique. Two simple shirtweight dresses were chosen. One was in white cotton and the second blue wool. Hitch was really partial to good wool. He believed it captured the light and photographed well. Hitch also wanted a white bra and half slip and a similar set in black. Helen and Rita waited for him to make up his mind which color Janet would wear in the opening scene with Sam and which color she would wear when she took, uh, took off with the money. Hitch waited until the last minute. During her racy, intimate scene with Sam, as an unmarried woman, a fact that broke the Hayes Code and drove the censors bananas, Janet wore white. Hitch intended to push the boundaries of the production code. He knew that a younger audience would expect more than just a simple kissing scene between Marion and Sam. Times had changed. Screenwriter Joseph Stefano knew it too. Stefano was convinced that he was hired to adapt the novel and the screenplay because when Hitch asked for what he would do to build up the leading lady's role, Stefano answered he'd like to see her shacking up with Sam on her lunch hour. Stefano noted, the minute I said shack up, Hitch adored it. That hooked him. Throughout production, Hitch was solicitous, playful, and deeply concerned with Janet's comfort and well-being, perhaps because he knew the shower scene would have a terrible psychological impact. He did his level best to keep the mood on set lively and full of witty banter and games. He would whisper naughty stories and jokes to Janet, and when she laughed, blushed, or enjoyed them, reports were that Hitch walked back to his seat with an impish grin. Janet recalled that as set designers and makeup crew artists experimented with how Mrs. Bates should look on screen, Hitch tested the results on her. After lunch, or when she finished a scene, Janet would find the corpse of Norman's mother sitting in her dressing room. And Hitch measured the pitch and duration of Janet's screams to determine when they found the right look for mother. In one year, the Hitchcock office in Paramount received 2,400 treatments and scripts, of which 30 reached Hitch's desk when he was looking for his next project. He read a New York Times book review of Robert Block's novel, Psycho, and asked Peggy about it. A studio reader had already filed a report advising a pass on the book because it would never get by censors, what with the violence, incest, and cross-dressing. Hitch read the novel and decided it was just what he wanted for his next project. After the prestige big-budget North by Northwest, he wanted to do a shocker on a shoestring budget. But Paramount was hesitant to invest in a black-and-white thriller from some tawdry paperback that was inspired by the case of serial killer Ed Gein. Studio executives wanted another lush Technicolor cloak-and-dagger picture with Cary Grant. But Hitch wanted to prove he didn't need a big budget to make a hit. Hitch instead financed Psycho himself and had a sweet payoff when it did well at the box office. By some estimates, he made $15 million on Psycho. Crazy money. Janet Lee was nominated for Best Supporting Actress as Marion Crane. Hitch also received an Oscar nomination. But in the end, Janet lost to Shirley Jones and Billy Wilder won Best Director. 
minutes after she lost the Oscar, Janet had to rush backstage and change to do Triplets, that number from Bandwagon, with Tony Curtis and Danny Kaye. Judy Garland sent Janet a telegram the next day, marveling over her performance. Judy couldn't believe that performance came from someone who had just lost an Oscar. You could never guess, she said. Janet was a complete professional. Janet Lee's illustrious screen career showcased her versatility. She excelled in sweet romantic comedies, such as Holiday Affair and Just This Once. She was a standout in period pictures like Little Women and The Black Shield of Falworth. In musicals like Two Tickets to Broadway, My Sister Eileen and Bye Bye Birdie, she matched the star power of song and dance prose. In prestige dramas such as Act of Violence, Touch of Evil, and The Manchurian Candidate, she never took a false step. Janet adapted to changing tastes and trends in Hollywood, and she avoided the trap of typecasting that frustrated so many of her peers in the studio system. She was never written off as a bombshell, despite her enviable hourglass figure. Janet's film career began with a little help from a legendary star. In 1947, Norma Shearer was enjoying a ski holiday when she noticed at the front desk a framed photo of a very pretty girl. The hotel clerk informed the former queen of MGM that the girl in the frame was his daughter, Jeanette Morrison. Norma thought the girl looked good enough to be in pictures and asked for a copy to take with her when she left. Although Norma had retired from Metro, she was still a major stockholder and had many friends in the studio. MGM talent scout Bill Grady soon heard about Norma's discovery. The studio arranged a meeting for the pretty 18-year-old Jeanette. Lillian Burns, the studio's acting coach, who had made Lana Turner a star and many other women, initially balked at meeting Jeanette. Burns was unimpressed and huffed, another girl next door. But Miss Burns gave Jeanette a scene to do from 30 Seconds Over Tokyo for a screen test. And when Janet finished, Miss Burns gave her another scene to do on the spot and then rang producer Jack Cummings and director Roy Rowland and told them, I've got your ingenue. The second scene had been from The Romance of Rosie Ridge, a production that had not yet cast its star. Jeanette Morrison was signed and cast in the part. At the time, she was living in a flat above a garage with her second husband. She was so broken in experience that she burst into tears in front of Miss Burns, saying she didn't have any money to go on location. Miss Burns laughed, called her a little fool. Metro would pay all expenses. Looking back years later, Miss Burns noted, Janet had this well of spirit or charisma that comes out and grabs you. At the beginning of her career, all she lacked was experience, but I have to say nobody worked harder or learned more and faster than Janet did. One week after signing a seven-year contract, Jeanette was on location co-starring with Van Johnson, who coached her at night. Executives in the front office wanted a new name for their starlet. One suggested Jeanette Reams, using her husband's surname. Van Johnson said, absolutely not. Can you imagine? Louis B. Mayer stepped in with the answer. She would be Janet after Janet Gaynor and Lee after Vivian Lee. Thus, Janet Lee was born. 
At one point in 1948, Janet Lee worked on three different productions at the same time. She was finishing up Acts of Violence, directed by Fred Zinman, with industry pros like Mary Astor, Robert Ryan, and Van Heflin. Then director Mervyn Leroy stopped her in the lot one day and said he cast her to play Meg in Little Women. That led to costume fittings during each lunch hour. And I'm not convinced that anyone could actually eat lunch or rest during a costume fitting. Then, after she finished her regular workday, she met with Miss Burns at night to prepare for a screen test. And she rehearsed scenes for, the, for a role in Young Bess. Now, Janet lost the part to Gene Simmons, but still she put in all that work to join the cast. Janet's schedule in the studio meant she put in 15 hours a day without proper rest or meal breaks. And as a teenager, she was the sole support of her parents. Oh, and in the middle of this arduous work schedule, Janet recovered from a divorce with her second husband. The first marriage, by the way, had been annulled when she was only 14. MGM was giving Janet a solid buildup. She was a featured player in A-list productions from the start. She began to enjoy her independence and her film career. Then one day, out of the blue, casting agent Benny Tao delivered the news that Metro was loaning her out to RKO for a three-picture deal. They tried to make it seem like it was a boost for her career and the studio was doing her a favor, but it didn't seem that way to Janet. Truly, loan-outs could be one of the worst deals for a star in the studio system, with all the benefit going to executives. The star could be left in abusive conditions and have damage done to their career. Before Janet faced Norman Bates in the shower, she was plagued by another psycho for years when she went to work for Howard Hughes. RKO had been in a financial freefall. Howard Hughes took advantage of the studio's downward slide and purchased 24% of RKO's stock in 1948, which made him the most powerful shareholder in the studio. He then installed himself as the head of production and negotiated deals from both sides of the table. As the head of Hughes Industries, he sold the studio three of his pictures, Outlaw, Mad Wednesday, and Vendetta along with a catalog of scripts and miscellaneous film equipment. He also sold his exclusive contract with Jane Russell to RKO for $100,000. Oscar-winning screenwriter and producer, producer Norman Krasna felt that Howard Hughes took over the studio to use as his personal dating service. And if you look at the number of women Hughes sexually harassed and bullied in RKO while he was there, Krasna wasn't lying. In 1949, Hughes must have paid a bundle for Janet Lee's loan-out deal. And she disliked him from the start and bristled at the thought of leaving the palace for this rundown studio. Janet's new boss didn't waste any time trying to get her into bed. Howard often played this game where he would invite a woman for dinner and then hustle her into an airplane and fly her across state lines without notice. Well, some stars looked at this Hughes ruse with some amusement, and they saw it as a dazzling romantic gesture, but not Janet. She felt like she'd been kidnapped and held against her will. Each time she thought the evening was over that the plane would take her somewhere else. From the coast to the Grand Canyon to Las Vegas, and then back to L.A. eventually. 
Howard Hughes was just getting started. He played games with Janet for years. Several times, Janet would accept an invitation from friends only to discover it was some kind of setup by Howard Hughes, who would then appear out of nowhere. After months of this, tired of the games, Janet stood up to him and said, why don't you be straightforward and just ask me out like a normal guy? So then Howard did, and she said emphatically no. Janet didn't grow fearful when she saw the pain of rejection on his face. He was a powerful man in Hollywood and the the nation at large, but she was tired of this cloak and dagger carry-on. At one point, she gave in and accepted a dinner invitation, but only if her parents could come along. Janet considered Howard a part of her father's generation. He held no romantic interest for her, and she didn't care about his money or power. She was careful not to be alone with him, and when she was, she kept her father stationed outside the door for protection. One day, when she was under contract, Howard called her into his office, and he gave Janet a big folder filled with reports on her activities, where she went, who she met, what she said. There were even details about a dress she was having made. Howard informed Janet that this was evidence that Arthur Lowe, the heir to MGM's theater chain she was dating at the time, had hired a private detective. But Janet smelled a rat. One report included a description of an unknown brunette and an address where the woman had taken Janet. And then at that moment, Janet realized that the unidentified woman was Arthur's sister, which meant that the file wasn't compiled for the cinema chain air, but was collected by someone Howard had paid to spy on her. And she told him so. Holiday Affair, the first picture under Janet's deal with RKO, went smoothly, but Jet Pilot turned into an ordeal that dragged on until 1957. The Atomic Age update to Hell's Angels used cast Janet as a sexy Russian flyer who falls for an American pilot, played by John Wayne. Filming went on for nearly three years. Howard's meticulous attention to the aerial scenes mushroomed into a full-blown disaster at the box office. The picture tanked when the flight sequences looked dated and old-fashioned. Janet began the last picture she owed for RKO without any start date in sight. Two tickets to Broadway, an upbeat musical, was held up by delays. To keep Janet from getting restless, Howard hired Marge and Gower Champion to lead dance rehearsals, which carried on for months without a start date. They still needed a final script and a leading man. Howard delayed, delayed, delayed. Somehow he must have thought he could still conquer Janet's resistance and get her to sleep with him. He was relentless. Finally, Janet had enough of the games. She burst into his office one day and demanded the picture start. When Howard began his stall tactics, she picked up a phone from his desk and threw it at him. The phone missed Howard and crashed through the wall, leaving a big hole behind. Until the picture was ready to go, she said she would be in New York City. Janet walked off the lot and took a train east. Janet was ever the lady, well-mannered and polite, but enough was enough. Howard Hughes stalked Janet until she got serious about Tony Curtis, and then Howard dropped her cold, and she never saw him or spoke to him again. Creepy. 
Janet had met Tony at an RKO cocktail party, and from the moment he saw her, he recalled in his memoirs, Tony was determined to have her. Janet was already a much bigger star than Tony. She taught him a lot, not just about acting for the camera, but also what she had learned in Metro about social graces, things like table manners. Esther Williams had noted in her book that Metro's training prepared contract players to be able to hold their own with royalty. Miss Burns once explained that if a star didn't know how to hold a champagne glass, the studio taught them how. And Tony Curtis definitely benefited by what Janet taught him, which gave him the confidence to go from being a poor slum kid to a global star. Together, Janet and Tony were a press agent's dream come true. They were so beautiful, so talented. Janet and Tony were on the cover of every magazine. They made six pictures together, had two beautiful daughters, Kelly and Jamie Lee. They moved in the A-list circles in both pictures and politics. They hung out with Jerry Lewis, Frank Sinatra and the Rat Pack, the Kennedys. While Janet's career rose through serious roles in prestige films, Tony struggled to be taken seriously as an actor, and not just a teenage heartthrob with great hair. Reading Tony's accounts of his serial infidelities provides a classic case of a man using sexual conquest as a way to compensate for his feelings of insecurity. Tony suffered from poverty, trauma, guilt, and abandonment he experienced as a child. Tony's parents were so poor, they once took him and his younger brother Julie to an orphanage because they couldn't care for the boys. Tony and Julie clung to each other until their parents returned weeks later. Julie was later run down in the street by a truck and killed. Tony's parents sent him to identify his brother's body. And Tony took the blame for what happened, and he carried that with him. Jenna and Tony were married for 11 years, and then it blew up in disaster. He fell for his teenage co-star, Christine Kaufman, and walked out on the marriage. Tony was still caught up in his trauma and had a classic midlife crisis. Janet lost an Oscar, her father to suicide, and then her husband. But she soldiered on as women do. When I watch Janet in any picture, and especially Psycho, I see a brainy dame who deserves all the breaks. I'm always rooting for her. Thanks for listening. The following books helped me to write the episode. There Really Was a Hollywood by Janet Lee, published in 1984. Psycho, Behind the Scenes of the Classic Thriller by Janet Lee and Christopher Nickens, published in 1995. Alfred Hitchcock and the Making of Psycho by Stephen Rebello, published in 1990. American Prince, My Autobiography by Tony Curtis and Peter Goldenbach, published in 2009. Alfred Hitchcock, A Life in Darkness and Light by Patrick McGilligan, published in 2003. Howard Hughes, The Untold Story by Peter H. Brown, published in 2005. Stay tuned for the next original podcast series, House of the Seven Garbos, which premieres in December. Thanks very much.